All right, welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends, or today it is just Kyle and Friends. Uh, we are going to, we, <laughs> there is no we, there's just a me. Uh, I am going to be talking to Sitch and Adam of the Sitch and Adam show on YouTube. I was on their show previously, uh, and they're, they're interesting because I think they sort of self-describe as enlightened centrists, and we're going to get into that. I'll ask them what's their definition of that and uh, about a bunch of their different uh, political positions. Um, and I'm interested in, you know, a dialogue and a back and forth because I feel like, I, I don't know about you guys if you enjoy watching it, but I always enjoy, you know, having conversations where there might be some overlap, but there's actually uh, plenty of areas of disagreement, you know, reasonable disagreement. Uh, so I'm actually really looking forward to having this conversation with these guys. Uh, they're, they stream pretty much all day, two days a week. Um, I'll ask them which days, which days they stream because I'm, I'm blanking on it at the moment, but... Uh, they have a really interesting show, and they they end up, um, you know, discussing stuff on their show, but also debating people with different perspectives, which, of course, uh, I enjoy to watch myself. So really looking forward to this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. If you're interested in uh, checking them out, you can find their show on YouTube. Again, it's Sitch and Adam Show. Enjoy. All right, Sitch and Adam of the Sitch and Adam Show on YouTube. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank hey. you for having us. And thank you for saying the Sitch and Adam show correctly. <laughs> yeah. It's not like a lot I, of people call it the Adam and Sitch show. I I've messed it up in multiple ways previously. First of all, I've <laughs> done the Adam and Sitch show, and I've also done the classic Adam and Stitch show. Yes. yes. <laughs> I've messed it up in every Adam way you Sitch can mess show it up. just sounds more comfortable. No, it doesn't. <laughs> this is the old school yeah. argument that you guys have. So, uh, yes. guys, there's so much stuff that I want to talk to you about. First of all, I, I did you know a stream with you. I don't know how long ago it was now, maybe a month or two ago, and uh, I had a great time mm -hmm. on that stream. Um, first, I want to talk a little bit about your show, and I want to talk a little bit about you know your uh, respective ideologies. Let's start with this. Um, you guys sort of, I guess, semi tongue in cheek, semi seriously describe yourself as as enlightened centrists. First of all. <laughs> define enlightened centrist and then second of all give me like another label you might use for your own politics i'm assuming maybe liberal is one that might apply to both of you but go ahead mm -hmm. since you want to go first well i mean when i say enlightened centrist it is somewhat of a joke but it is also somewhat serious in that the way that we use the term doesn't mean like there's this there's a straw man there's this ridiculous idea that if you're a centrist you know, whenever you're confronted with a political opinion, you must be the exact moderate. You must be the exact center of the political compass, you know, with, with all times, regardless of the issue. And that's not what we're talking about. When I say enlightened centrist, I just mean someone who will actually not be, you know, fall prey to tribalism, will actually have an independent, or at least try to have an independent view on each individual issue and not just say, well, what is my team telling me to do? So that's what I mean. When I say enlightened centrist, um, but more, you know, regarding your second question, more specifically, if you were to take, you know, how I vote and generally where my views fall, I would, I would probably be like, you know, a pretty centrist liberal, you know, Democrat on most issues. Gotcha. Adam, what, what yeah, do you think? I, well, I, I'm in the same boat, obviously. I think independent is probably a better descriptor. Unfortunately, when you say centrist, a lot of people interpret that as neutral and then get very chapped when you come out against whatever their position is. Like they expect you just to be neutral on everything, which is kind of ridiculous in this environment. So, but yeah, I, I definitely lean left. And, you know, people who 
watch the show, I think realize that we're kind of against wokeness because we see it as illiberal and even like using the term wokeness is kind of considered right wing. So a lot of people like surfacely uh, view us as kind of on the right, but uh, anyone who watches us knows we're definitely on the left. <laughs> so yeah, our, our right wing audience loves to say that we're very far on the left. So. Yes, they they like to. Yeah, they yeah, definitely so, think we're like liberals. <laughs> so let me ask you about your audience because it's 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 interesting. Number one, I've noticed, and we could talk about this more later. You guys really do you know, buck your audience quite a bit. You've done it on the issue of MMT. You've done it on the issue of January 6th. Again, we could talk a little bit about that later. Um, but what is, is your audience ideologically a little more to the right? And then they kind of get mad at you anytime you color outside the lines or give me, give me a little bit of the backstory there. Well, well I, I'm go ahead. Such. I want to say, I, don't, I, I mean, I think we, I would wager, I guess we have like 60% of our audience is, is would probably self-identify as right wing. I think the other 40% would probably label themselves as like moderate left or, or independent. Mm -hmm. um, I think it like when, when we cover, you know, January 6th stuff, uh, which was Adam's idea, by the way, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where we watched, we watched one of the hearings. It was the one with the, um, what was his name? Rosen, the attorney general. And uh, we kind of like went through it and how, you know, crazy, you know, basically how bad and crazy Trump was behaving, uh, you know, regarding all the election fraud stuff, I think we actually like, <laughs> I think we actually lost like a, I don't know, like 10% of our audience from that. So maybe, wow. maybe our audience was more right wing before then. Do you think that I'm not sure we really lost any audience share over the, I mean, I think, people I were like angry we at us, but yeah. I don't feel like we lost audience share. Yeah. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. I try not to think about it. Cause then if I think about it too much or like, if I look into it, then I don't want it to influence my you know, my performance, basically. We we occupy an interesting space because I think 90% of the people who are producing left-wing commentary on YouTube really straw man the rights arguments a lot, which makes it difficult for anyone on the right to enjoy their content. And we at least try, you know, to, to steel man, as they say now, the whatever the right argument is for whatever the issue is like we mm -hmm. also covered abortion which is a really hot button topic but i you know i understand and respect where the right is coming from and a lot of people on the left you know obviously they just believe the right wants to control women's bodies and you know they have this set list of arguments that they make that are virtually all just straw man arguments of what the other side is saying yeah, you know, I've heard you guys make this point before, and I think it's a good one, particularly when it comes to the issue of abortion. It's like you have um, your baby killers on one side. Yes. Uh, you know. <laughs> and yeah. your rape apologists on the other side. <laughs> right, yeah. And so to discuss that issue with any degree of nuance is going to turn the hardcore people off. But I also like what you said there about trying to, like, steal man the right and then uh, talk about the position because I, I, I sort of agree with you that most of the commentary I see, particularly in the new media space in this day and age, is very sort of glib and, and flippant and arrogant and like dismissive as opposed to like, well, let me actually be as charitable as humanly possible and then dive into the conversation because and I definitely find this is the case personally. It's so much more fun and interesting when you actually treat the ideas you're dealing with as like, let me give the best version of this idea 
and then disagree mm-hmm. with it or agree with it or dive into the nuances of it. Um, so I, I love that you said that. Um, on, to go back to the centrism thing for one second, because I want to give you guys the way I conceptualize of, of centrism and then have you respond. So when I think of, there's two kinds of centrism in my mind. One of them is like centrism in the context of Washington, D.C., Like people often say, oh, we need more bipartisanship or we need more moderation or centrism in D.C. And that kind of centrism I'm almost completely opposed to because I think we have almost too much bipartisan in Washington, D.C. And it's usually they agree to like deregulate Wall Street and start more wars and be incredibly corrupt. And so (laughs) I don't like that kind of centrism. But the kind of centrism I've even described myself as before, the kind of centrist I even described myself as before, is like in the center of mainstream public opinion in the country. And when I say that, what I mean is if you look at the polling data, for example, most Americans want to raise the minimum wage. Most Americans want universal health care. Most Americans want to end the wars. And, you know, I could just sit here and list all day gay marriage, whatever the, the areas where American public opinion sort of falls on the left of the political spectrum. I consider myself a centrist in that respect. Um, so how would you how would you respond to that, Sitch? Do you have a do you think that's a fair conceptualization of centrism or do you think that's I'm off in la la land? Well, so you're saying that you're a centrist as long as the center is on the left. <laughs> well, well, hold on, no, no. Well, let me respond to that because if if public opinion in the country wasn't in agreement yeah. with those positions I take, then I wouldn't describe myself as a centrist. But in that context, by that definition, right, I, I right. would say I am a centrist. No, I, I understand what you're saying. You're saying that, yeah, you're saying that. Okay, like on a lot of issues, my views would be would align with the majority of people in America. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call that a centrist um because it i don't know as i said it, it it seems it seems almost like cheating you're like well i'm a centrist when it you know suit whenever it you know goes the direction i want it to go right well here so i'll give you a is, counter is example. that the case too i'm not necessarily yeah, give me sure. a counter example okay counter example so one of the issues i'm i'm against the death penalty because there was a study that came out uh-huh. years ago that said four percent of the time we kill the wrong people so that's my reasoning mm-hmm. for being, a, I don't want the government murdering people, even if it's 4% of the time, I'd rather just say life in prison. You know, that I'm fine with that. That's an issue where the American right. public is totally against me. The American public is, I think it's 56% or 60%, something in that ballpark are in favor of the death penalty. So on that front, I am not in the, I'm not with the American people. I disagree with the American people. So I describe right. myself to You're the left of the American people. So in other words, the I reason see. I'm making I that see. point is to say, I'm not playing hide the ball or twisting definitions. I'm just saying that if I define centrism as like, in the center of American public opinion, then I would say I am a centrist. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. Um, I mean, we don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to fight for the label of centrist because honestly, nobody wants to be called the centrist. Yeah, that's except true. For me and Adam. So <laughs> that's, that's very I, it's, it's kind of like we're fighting over a turd sandwich here. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is definitely true. Um, C- Adam- centrist was a lot more popular uh, some time ago, but it really yeah. has become kind of a pejorative. Right now so yeah i i guess i mean you're kind of conceptualizing an issue as like a there's a you know in a democratic way like there's a group of people and you know if it's a if it's a 50 50 split then it's a it's a centrist position like on the death penalty i'm not i'm not quite sure i understand the argument that you're making so So you're, you're saying like how does that how does that relate to centrism so well that's why i said i'm there 
two different conceptions of of centrism mm -hmm. when I think about it. One of them is like right. the center of Washington, D.C., in between the Democrats and Republicans. Right. That's one. That's the right. one I think most people think of when they think of centrism. The other one I'm saying is like mm -hmm. in the center of mainstream American public opinion. So if there is an issue right. where 60%, 70% of Americans say, I think this, usually I'm like, yeah, I think you're kind of right about that. So that, that, that's what right. I mean by that. Uh, but I'm, I understand as I propose this to you guys now, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because I know yeah. my conception is a little outside of the norm. <laughs> when, when people bring up centrism, yes, they don't really yeah. talk about that. So if there is an issue that the country is completely split on, which there are many issues that were like, you know, four, it feels like 49, 49. Where right. does that fit into this conceptualization of centrism? Like, I understand what you're saying that, and and how, if you have something where like 80% of the country is on one side and 20% of the country is on one side, where's the centrist position on that? This is one of the problems that I see with defining centrism as like a middle position, which is obviously people are going to do that because you're, you're creating a cognitive framework where you're saying the center of some point between two extremes Mm -hmm. So I, I, I understand why that, that happens, but I don't conceptualize centrism like that at all. I mean, you're going to fall. It, it basically is you're going to fall on sometimes on the right and sometimes on the left, depending upon the issue. But I mean, you could be, you know, pro, uh, pro gun and pro abortion up until like the ninth month and still be a centrist, even though that's those positions are ideologically at opposites in the current political environment. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. I, I would say in terms of um, your definition of centrism of like not falling prey to tribalism. Um, I mean, I would just contend that anybody who does do that is sort of, I would just call them an idiot. You know what I mean? Like even people who are ruthless partisans, I would hope that they came to their conclusions, not by just going, I'm going to blindly follow the crowd. But I guess that happens quite a bit unfortunately mm -hmm. well that that happens most of the time though. i agree I yeah. that's, I agree. that's like 90 percent of the voting public 99 yeah they outsource their decision making to the wider party so that they can go about their lives and you know get things done so this is kind of the problem when we add all of this complexity to politics, it kind of turns more people off because they just throw up their hands and say, there's no way I can figure this out. So I guess I would respond to that by saying, I don't think it's 99% of the voting public that are like sort of brainless mm. uh, partisans. I would say it's more I, I like, don't think so either. Sitch is like a total I'm a lot more pessimistic here. on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I would say it's like 99% of the politicians and the media people, like all the prominent political people there, I would totally agree that they're, you know, a lot of brainless partisans. But like, let me just give a good counterexample to say, to explain why I think the voters are a lot more nuanced than that. Like we just had this election mm -hmm. in Kansas the other day. And the, the pro-choice position and a direct uh, ballot vote for the, the, their constitution ended up passing. And everybody was like, wait a second, this is Kansas. This is like an overwhelmingly conservative place. But they voted, I think it was 59% in the direction of the pro-choice position. So, so I actually think the, the, the public is a lot more nuanced and maybe intelligent than even the, you know, the media people, the politicians, the elite people. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I don't. The abortion thing is is tricky because both extremes are offering positions that I don't think anyone is interested in. Like the, I watched some of the hearings on abortion and everyone on the left. I mean, they didn't even want to come out and say they were against abortion up until the nine month, the ninth month. I mean, <laughs> that's that seems like a crazy position to me. 
And then on the the right, you've got, you know, life begins at conception. You can't get an abortion like three days after you've, when it's, when for all intents and purposes, like you can't even see the thing. So I, yeah. you know, those positions, I don't think appeal to anyone. So it doesn't surprise me that 59% voted yeah. in favor of some kind of reasonable way forward. Yeah. I think, mm-hmm. um, ironically, I think the Roe versus Wade position is the most moderate position on the issue of abortion because the that ruling was first trimester you basically have a right to an abortion second trimester states are allowed to do health regulations third trimester is when if states want to they can ban it i actually think roe versus wade was like sort of the perfect framework to evaluate abortion policy what do you think of that so yeah. do you agree well i mean like legally morally i mean legally i i understand what you're saying i agree uh morally to me i i the viability doesn't make like it doesn't logically make sense to me why that would be the focal point unless you were going to say that you're going to remove you know the baby and let you know instead of aborting it if it's viable which no one's talking about doing uh so it seems kind of arbitrary to me to to me i judge human life by consciousness and brain activity so i would say i think it actually though is 24 weeks so maybe this is all you know to do about nothing but um, I think it should be where where higher consciousness develops in the fetus. In me, in my mind, is where like the abortion cutoff should occur. See, this is interesting because we just learned that on the issue of abortion, Sitch is actually to the left of me. Because my, my <laughs> oh okay, well there you go. You are, yeah. My standard is more, and there's debate as to where this line is actually drawn. Because I think you know some mm-hmm. conservative partisans have said have said when you talk about like you know, fetal pain in the nervous system being created. It's as early as like six weeks. I don't think that's true, but I I genuinely feel like it's a different moral calculation when you're talking about pain involved. And I think that line is earlier than higher consciousness. No, it is. But to me, like, you know, animals feel pain, you know, you know, small, you know, you could have multiple, you know, tiny multiple celled organisms feel pain. I mean, to me, pain is not a, it's not a reference point for what makes something a human at all. And, and, and I would agree with that. Right? I, mean, I would agree with that. I just think pa- there's something inherently wrong about mm-hmm. causing pain, even to the point where, I mean, I do it all the time with animals because I eat meat and stuff. But like, of course, I kind of think I, a, I'm like, I'm kind of doing something wrong if I do that, <laughs> yeah. even though I'm going to do it. You know what I'm saying? Every time you step on a little ant, you're causing pain. You're killing a life, you know? But I'm like, well, whatever. It's not human. I mean, that's why to me, I have to make the distinction where, you know, where I think humanity begins in my mind. Because that's what really what we're talking about. We're talking about, and this is where like a lot of the left, you know, uh, kind of fumbles on the issues. I always hear this kind of, oh, the right just wants to control women's bodies argument, which I think, you know, I'm sure there's someone out there like that, but I, I don't I don't think majority of people who are pro-life that's entering the equation, I think that they believe they honestly believe that the fetus is uh, a human life and it deserves personhood rights. So to me, that's the question is where does personhood begin? And so that's why I say consciousness, higher consciousness, or at least the ability for higher consciousness. And I would say most people probably come to that conclusion uh, through a religious perspective, but it doesn't have to be a religious perspective. You could still, there are some people who are like secular pro-lifers. I think it's a tiny percentage, but it's real. It's there. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because whenever we say that a lot of our audience pushes back, because apparently we have that tiny minority of secular pro-lifers, supposedly. 
That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting group. Yeah. I find like heterodox mm-hmm. positions like that very interesting personally. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, there's a million things I want to talk to you guys about, but I guess, have you guys watched any of the Alex Jones defamation trial or no? I saw I just, one clip and I tried to listen to some of it. Yeah. Do you, do yeah, you I saw that a, one clip I'm assuming everyone saw with the, uh, oh, yeah. your lawyer gave us all the phone data by accident. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do you guys have a, a position on, you know, what you think is the ideal outcome for the trial? What do you think, Adam? This is an interesting question because so much, really so much of our show is like Sitch and I talking through these things, you know, (laughs) and I haven't really thought much about the Alex Jones controversy. I do know that there is like a, a lot of difficulty here with you know discerning truth in the current environment and i i know a lot of people we had uh, the amazing atheist on our show a couple of weeks ago and you know he has a position where he doesn't want to let any un untruce you know be broadcast into the world and, and you know i have i have some sympathy for that position but i just i don't necessarily know how we discern what truth is it seems like a, a big part of our political life is is trying to understand you know how what is true in the world so i'm uncomfortable i'm uncomfortable with the situation i mean obviously in the sandy hook situation it's crystal clear like we know what the truth was and you kind of have alex jones uh you know taking a totally self-serving position but in you know the the broader context of the debate it is a it is a tough it is a tough debate that I think we need to have more often. What do you think, Sitch? Give a clear answer, Adam. Look at that. You just didn't give any answer. That was a well, nothing just, answer. What the, the, does he just, does Alex Jones get sued? Does he pay the families well, all this money? Or is it free speech? Alex, Alex, clearly Alex Jones should should get sued and should pay the, I mean, I they're haggling over the amount of money now. Like he's already lost right. the case, correct? And so we know, and even the judge is admonishing him for, you know, lying in court, basically saying things like he didn't, he cooperated with uh, discovery, which he didn't cooperate with discovery. So yeah, I'm up to speed on that stuff. And, but I I just, the more interesting question for me is uh, the wider debate about, you know, truth in media, right? Like we Mm -hmm. have Biden tried to nominate a, like a truth czar, right? Who was going to, who was obviously a partisan hack, who I don't believe has any ability to discern what is true and what is not. Mm-hmm. Putting her in a position of power is ridiculous. I mean, that is the, that is the substantive debate here, is it not? Uh, over the whole, this is why the Alex Jones thing is interesting, correct? Because there are people that do believe Alex Jones, like still believe what Alex Jones is saying is true, which is, that's the scary part. Right. Well, I, I'll be honest, I don't know like super a lot of the facts, um, mm-hmm. Kyle. So I don't know, like, is the claim that- Oh, you're going to punt? You're not going to answer now? No, no, What's I'm going to answer. Listen, I'm going to answer. This I'm just, is, I'm just, this is, wait, this I'm just is our show facts. all the way, right? I'm just asking for some clarification here. Is the claim that Alex Jones was just horribly negligent or is the claim that he knew that he was, uh, you know, BSing with the claims he was so, making? So here's the here's the case breakdown as far as I understand it. I've been watching it like a hawk because I'm fascinated by it. But um, mm-hmm. so this was not a criminal trial. 
it was a, it was a civil case, right? Which is, a, yeah, it's yeah. A civil. Sure. Which just to explain for the audience, there's a very big difference there because the the standard of evidence is actually much lower in a civil case than it is in a criminal case. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's the preponderance of the evidence, which is like basically, if it's better than a fifty percent chance that there were some damages done here, then okay, pay out effectively. So I don't think they mm-hmm. would have been. And this is I've gotten criticism uh, from my left over this, but I was against the Alex Jones deplatforming, and I was against. Um, I don't think he would have been found guilty in a criminal trial, to be honest with you, because the bar for defamation, I think, is rightly so high that you need to prove material Mm -hmm. damages and you have to prove like a a direct causation. And it was just too many layers removed to really connect the dots all the way back to Alex Jones. And I think in a court of law, it really wouldn't have gone well. In this case in particular, he was found guilty of defamation, but he's found what's called guilty by default. So the whole reason he was found guilty was not on necessarily the substance of the trial. It was because he didn't cooperate with the court and provide all the documents that he was legally required to provide. And so, yeah, he was found guilty for that reason. And then now now the only conversation is how much are Uh you going to have to pay out? And the defense is asking for just a dollar. And, you know, the plaintiff's attorneys are asking for one hundred and fifty million. So that's the background of the case. Ouch. I'm, I mean, I'm assuming he doesn't have $150 million, but... Well, th- um, that's another thing, because he's claiming that he doesn't have any money. He's claiming he's bankrupt, and the well, judge that's admonished him for... True, but, that's definitely not true. The judge admonished him for... We have some facts on that. We, we right. have... I mean, they, the judge... I'm sorry, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. The, the judge admonished him for claiming that he was bankrupt in, in court because she's like, you just filed for bankruptcy, okay? That hasn't been determined whether or not that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And from my reading of well, the... okay, go ahead, Sitch. Well, I was just saying, well, I'll answer the question because mm-hmm. I haven't answered it so far. Um, I, it, it's uh, let's see, how how can we answer this question? Because, like with the Sandy Hook thing, it's to me, it's so horrifyingly obvious that yes, that it wasn't some you know conspiracy theory, you know, it wasn't a false flag. I mean, to me, it's just so like insanely obvious uh, that that really happened and but at the same token i guess i'm not sure if i mean i still think people should be able to make crazy claims on the internet as long as they think as long as the person doesn't know that they're lying um generally that's usually where my cutoff is i guess the next question would be well how how horribly negligent does someone have to be, especially someone with a large audience? Like how much do they have to just screw up and be lazy or be stupid in their thinking that it causes harm, that it's it's worthwhile? So I don't know. Maybe I can take the easy out, which is to say uh, that criminally, you know, he shouldn't be charged, but civilly, you know, it's fine for him to get sued by his families because he did cause them, presumably, you know, all this emotional damage by having them or even, you know, be afraid because if he's out there saying that as a false flag, he's doing all this stuff and he's not checking any of this information. It'd be very easy to check to find out that these people really died and that these were real people. And if this leads to family members who've lost their children, you know, receiving death threats and people stalking them, I mean... I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe it is just he's so negligent for something that was so easy to check on. So he should be held responsible. Can we talk about like the knowingly portion of this for a second? Because I think with defamation, I I mean, I'm under the impression like a lot more harm is done through the to the world through stupidity than malice Mm -hmm. and just 
I sometimes I, I think of it kind of like drunk driving, like you have a giant platform. It seems like you have some duty to at least investigate the claims that you're making. And if you're just, if you're not going to do that, how is it any different than some drunk getting in the car and, and slamming into a family when, when these people put like blatant untruths into the world? Even if they're doing it, even if they're doing it like innocently because they haven't checked. Well, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I think the problem is that nowadays it seems like so much of the fights are over what is true in the facts of the case rather than like your opinion of the facts. And I would assume even with Sandy Hook, you know, you could point to all this, you know, BS fake news facts that were that were propping up about it being a false flag or whatever exactly the conspiracy charge was. So they could say, oh, you know, I, I was looking into it. Look, here's my mountain of facts. I mean, we see this with almost every whenever there's a contentious issue. It's always, you know, whose set of facts do you believe in? Well, sooner or later that we have to go down that road. We have to go down the like you should be able to discern truth to some level, especially mm -hmm. if you're a member of the media where you're shaping public perception. I just, I feel like this, we have to go down that road. We have to say, listen, you should have known this is the truth. You can't just throw up your hands and say, oh, you right. know, I had my set of facts and you had your set of facts. And so of course, I mean, mine I could, were all BS. But So let me, let me chime in here because I, what Sitch mm -hmm. said about intent, I think is actually spot on. I do think intent matters only. It might even be the thing that matters the most, um, which is why I don't think he really could have been uh, got on this criminally. Like, I don't think he would have been able to get jail time on this criminally because there's just too many dots to connect to the actions of the insane individuals who actually committed the crimes and harassed the people and whatnot. But the, the argument that's made by the plaintiff's attorneys is interesting because they make the point. There was some poll that came out that showed like 24% of the population says that Sandy Hook was either definitely or possibly faked and that Alex Jones was like the only media outlet of any size oh, whatsoever yeah, that was like ruthlessly pushing that agenda. <laughs> so, you know, it, there is a connection there. There's no doubt about it. But if you can't get him criminally, mm -hmm. I kind of agree with Sitch that like civilly it's, it's understandable. But at the same time, like, I don't know if you guys remember this because I think you're younger than I am, but um, there was this big scandal because uh bill o'reilly i don't know if day, we are younger than don't, don't don't laugh it's just smile <laughs> bill, bill o'reilly back in the day very you know very famously yeah. kept going after this abortion doctor who did late-term abortions and his name was george tiller and he would keep calling him tiller the yeah, baby killer like day yes, in day out day I remember in day out the baby killer, and then yeah. somebody murdered george tiller and so i actually yeah. think that's even more egregious than the alex jones one because in the alex jones one nobody got killed it was it, somebody actually right. got murdered because of what bill o'reilly said so again that's why i think criminally it's actually i think a pretty simple question even though it's an unpopular answer which is there's nothing you can do criminally there's just not enough there you know he never said the mm -hmm. name or he said the name alex may have personally never said the names of any of those people on air so the idea of like oh he docks them or he did he didn't do it there was one time owen schroyer uh you know one of the other hosts mentioned one of their names and it was like in passing or whatever. So again, I don't, the lines aren't clear enough to, to decide it criminally, but in terms of civilly, 
I mean, my guess is they're going to award at least $50 million to these plaintiffs because they have been harassed ruthlessly, mm-hmm. and they do. I think the jury is convinced of the connection back to Alex Jones, and Alex has perjured himself on the stand, and he just comes across like an unhinged maniac. And honestly, I think that's going to factor into their ruling, even if it's not supposed to. Yeah. Well, I don't definitely. think he just comes across as an unhinged maniac. I think he is an unhinged maniac. True. <laughs> True. I, I, part, part, of, part of my difficulty is that, like, with this... This individual case, to me, you know, very obviously, I, I think Alex Jones should pay for this individual case. My difficulty is in trying to construct like a more universal framework right. for how cases like this will be determined in the future. And I, I, I can't really figure out exactly how to do that. That's exactly right, Sid. And that's you, exactly what I struggle with, too. To? Yeah. I, I think it's, with, I think it's definitionally you? it happens when you're talking about the law, right? Of course. Yeah. That's the issue, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, but that's why I always say criminally, you can't really get them. But civilly, there's an open question. But you just hope that whatever precedent is set is not used Mm -hmm. to stifle speech in any sort of irrational way, which is a real fear in today's climate because you guys talk about it all the time. I mean, the speech police are everywhere. So, you know, that could could be a problem. Yeah. So stifling speech is the other side of that equation. I just I. Do you think people should be responsible for their own stupidity? Like I, I, do, I have so much difficulty with it because, uh, like, so so much harm is done just by stupidity that you you really can't look at people and say this is an intentional act, but it is causing a well, lot of damage. You're using the word stupidity, which I'm not sure is accurate because, like, using your drunk driving example, you know, if someone gets Everyone knows that if you drink and drive, like it's been so hammered into the consciousness of, you know, the minds of Americans that drinking and driving, you know, when you're drunk, it impairs your ability to react quickly and you're going to make poor decisions and you're going to be a more dangerous driver. Like everyone's kind of aware of this fact. Yes. And so if you decide to drink and drive, you know, you're kind of entering the situation with that knowledge. Now you could try to convince yourself that you're a fine driver. You're not really drunk or whatever, but you know, that's all besides the point. When you have someone like, you know, Alex Jones or or someone on the news who's kind of pushing something that turns out not to be true, I'm assuming that in most cases, it's not like a question of of that kind of level of negligence, like they know that they're playing fast and loose. It's more a question of these are people that kind of already buy into a worldview. They already buy into a set of ideological biases. And so they're going to sort of automatically look for information that confirms that bias. Right. And to me, it's kind of, I agree with you. Like I want there to be a framework, a way to sort of hold people accountable for, you know, horribly stupid fake news that they peddle. But since they're just, they're operating under like the same mental framework that everyone else is operating under and how they, you know, kind of look for information. I don't disagree, but I I feel like, in the context of the drunk driving situation, you're just saying, well, people like to drink and they have to get home. Like sooner or later, you have to start hammering into the culture, the ramifications of spreading misinformation, even if it's done ignorantly. Right. Well, like, I mean, otherwise you're never mm-hmm. going to avoid this situation. And people are always, they're always going to do it inadvertently, accidentally, and then use that as a defense. Right. It, it would be nice. It would be wonderful if, as a society we could create like a cultural defense against, you know, misinformation where people actually did feel guilty for spreading uh, fake news. I don't see that that's possible because 
you know, Alex Jones is kind of like the edge case. Most of the misinformation is far more, you know, left, right divide. It's far more sure. close to the yes. center. Right. And, and people don't and really also, agree what the misinformation ever even, even is. Yeah. Also, the truth is harder to discern in many cases. And I obviously concede that like in mm -hmm. certain situations. I mean, we're actively trying to discover the truth, but I'm only really talking about the extreme situations where, you know, this is obviously misinformation. I mean, like, I think, well, I mean, go ahead. Here, here's a, <laughs> this is going to be a contentious example. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, misinformation that's caused things in our society, you know, what about the, the fine people hoax, right? The, yeah, I mean, or, or January 6th. I mean, it's the same situation. Right. Yeah. But but it is. But if we if we want to go to the like the right wing perspective here, you know, Joe Biden's opening bid, you know, his first campaign ad was throwing the Donald Trump said that the people in Charlottesville were fine people, yeah. which, you know, he everyone neglects, not everyone, but a lot of people neglect the fact that if you actually watch the full, you know, questioning, you know, like a couple seconds after that find people line he specific he specifies that he's not talking about you know the nazis or anything like that when he said he was talking about fine people and yet that's a huge piece of mi of misinformation that you could easily go look on and maybe joe biden won the presidency because of that yeah and well, not this only is that why... it's embedded in the culture it's like in like dozens of books like right. well this yeah. is why it comes back to the point that you made earlier in the conversation you had with tj when where you were having the broader debate about this notion of a ministry of truth. And is that even possible? And this is something TJ and I have gone back and forth on previously. And my answer to that oh, is interesting. very, very firm. No, <laughs> a ministry of truth is not at mm -hmm. all possible because what happens in that scenario is you introduce the biases of the whoever you choose to be the ministry of truth. And you're going to have the same people in mainstream media who got the uh, Jussie Smollett thing dead wrong, who got the Russiagate thing dead wrong, who got uh, facts mm -hmm. about the war in Syria wrong, who got WMDs in Iraq wrong. Those are going to be the same people who would be propped up to be the one, the arbiters of what is correct and what is false. And nobody in their right mind should believe them. I mean, that, and that's not to absolve all of independent media, new media and alternative media of the incorrect things that are regularly spewed on that front, because there are incorrect things. But certainly there's way more cultural power and way more consequential lies, and, and or maybe lies isn't even the right word, just things that aren't true that come from you know mainstream media. So I don't think it's possible to create a ministry of truth. I think that uh, it, it's literally unworkable is my take on it. Yeah, I, I would never consider creating some institution that is like a ministry of truth if if anything the laws around defamation just need some tweaking but you know that might be unfeasible too because then you're just turning the legal system into the the check instead of the the, yeah, the so-called ministry of truth so but you, you made a good point before you would have though, better Adam. luck though with you would have better luck though with a jury of your peers and some partisan institution though yeah, I, I think you made a great point before, though, about the very extreme cases, which currently is like, that's kind of how our current system is set up, right? Like when people talk about the First Amendment, we have, you know, it, it, our First Amendment is is very lenient when it comes to freedom of speech, as it should be. 
But there are, you know, you still yes. can't do defamation. You still can't do libel. You still can't do slander. And the bar is very high to prove those things, which I think is correct. But there still are mm-hmm. examples of like, no, that actually is defamation. And you're not allowed to say that shit. So I think we actually kind of yeah. walked the balance properly when it comes to our Constitution. And more importantly, the interpretation of our Constitution in case law throughout U.S. history. Well, we're doing our best. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> So let, let me move on. I want I want to ask you guys about uh, Jordan Peterson. So you guys know I did an interview with him uh, oh, no. recently. No, I'm very curious your guys' thoughts on this because you guys, um, it, you know, I, I don't want to say you did a heel turn against your own audience, but but there was, oh no, no. So, so oh god, Kyle, you didn't tell us to invite us on Jeez. to throw us under the I'm, bus. I'm trying to get you canceled. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, but I'm very mm-hmm. curious as to your full fleshed out thoughts. So I had Jordan Peterson on, and I had a. a Uh, what I thought was a very interesting conversation with him. Jordan Peterson is a guy who I always found interesting for a variety of reasons, but sort of most importantly, I liked some of his philosophical stuff. I watched his lectures from 2017 on like Freud and Jung, and it was just all psychology stuff that was very in the weeds and detailed. And I enjoyed watching that entire series. So I liked his psychology stuff. I liked his sort of self-helpy stuff. I I don't use it personally, but I know about a million people in my own personal life who should fucking use it, who need a little bit of that Jordan Peterson (laughs) shit in their life. You know what I mean? But, you don't you don't stand up straight with your shoulders back. You seem like <laughs> it seems like something you might do. My room is clean. I'll, I will say that much. Um, <laughs> but you know, in in terms of politics and religion, there I've I've almost never really sort of seen eye to eye with him. And sometimes I even think some of his takes are a little silly. Um, tell me where I'll start with you, Sitch. Like, what is your take mm-hmm. on Jordan Peterson? How do you view him? What are his upsides? What are his downsides? And and has there been sort of a shift over time? We're now going with the Daily Wire. Perhaps he's uh, evolving his views a little bit or changing his views a little bit or or whatever. I'll let you take over. Right. Well, I mean, I, ne- I, I know it's like this is what everyone says, including Adam. I don't like to ascribe someone's shift in their behavior to like now that they have a new job or something. Maybe hmm. it's true. I don't know. I don't like to 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 go that route. Um, I mean, I, I you know, I'm a pretty big or maybe I was a pretty big Jordan Peterson fan. Obviously, he was sort of rocketed to fame by being, you know, anti-woke. Like the first video, I think, that really went viral was him talking to, you know, students about uh, was it Adam? Was it about pronouns? I don't remember the. Yeah, it was. It was so, C-16. Yeah. Kids yes. were Bill C-16 him. in Canada was what rocketed him to fame, basically. Was that what the first video was about, though? Wasn't it not I think so. I think he Bill was, like, C-16? debating some student about that. But okay, I could be maybe wrong. It was. I could about, be wrong. Yeah, the, about the bill. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, as a big, you know, anti-woke guy myself, I, I appreciate all the anti-woke stuff. Um, beyond, like, anti-wokeness, at least maybe until recently, he didn't really come out and have strong political takes uh from what i saw he would give very kind of moderate maybe slightly right-leaning takes on politics but beyond being anti-woke he didn't seem to like give like real policy prescriptions about you know health care or taxation or you know anything to that uh degree um i always i think his biggest benefit beyond the self-help stuff and i think the thing that he's not really i think people recognize but they don't really talk about is that it? This does come out with whenever he talks about religion, which is that I think Peterson's greatest strength is that he was able to look at some kind of like common sense wisdom or some kind of story that everyone agreed upon, and he would kind of deconstruct it and he would explain 
what exactly is happening in the story? What is the wisdom here in this quote unquote common sense thing that people are latched onto? Why have these stories stuck with our society for so long? And he was able to very intelligently explain to th- explain these stories to people that people intuitively felt intuitively felt were true, especially biblical stories, but didn't couldn't like verbalize, couldn't explain why these stories were important uh, to our society or to themselves. And to me, that was his biggest strength. And to me, that was one of the things that made him so incredibly fascinating. I don't like right now, I don't like, I was watching this, this, this old interview because uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Cody Johnston in yes. some more news, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, who I don't like at all. I don't know how you, <laughs> but they did like a two hour long hit piece on Jordan Peterson. And I was watching through some of it the other day. And they were playing all these like old clips, you know, from 2018, 2019 of Jordan Peterson. And, you know, he's, it's funny because they're attacking for these old clips where I'm listening to all this stuff and I don't see anything really that's attack worthy. And he, you know, Jordan Peterson would very often be in these contentious interviews where the interviewer was attacking him and he'd be very calm and cool and collected. And he would give very intelligent, very thoughtful, very nuanced answers to almost everything he was saying. And what I don't like now, is that when I see he's making you know these videos, which are Daily Wire videos, or maybe they're just on his own channel, where he's kind of seems like he's less in the camp of giving these nuanced, intelligent answers, and more in the camp of like I'm going to give like an angry rant from a bully pulpit sort of uh, tone to the kind of information that he's he's saying, and to me that shift is is what bothers me. I want Jordan Pearson to be the calm, cool, nuanced, collected professor, not like the the pundit. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I agree, and we've talked about this back and forth, and maybe I'm a little more vocal about my my disenchantment with the switch <laughs> just because like we've kind of, you know, we've defended Jordan Peterson in the past from what I felt uh were specious attacks against him, mischaracterizations of what he's saying. And I understand Jordan Peterson has kind of been this roar shark inkblot test on a lot of different things. Like you can look at what he's saying from, you know, your personal political perspective, and it seems to line up regardless of if you're on the left or the right. Obviously, I would see it more from a from a left perspective. And the thing that you know, it was kind of missing from Sitch's analysis, I think, is that, you know, when he would when he would tell talk about these biblical stories and whatnot and, and find the hidden wisdom, he was always careful to do it within a like a materialist scientific perspective, something that someone who was a non-believer could agree with. And I think right. there are a lot of people in our society you know, that were raised like me. I was raised Christian. I don't know how you were raised. I know you had your show secular talk. I mean, you're, you're, you were uh, very critical of religion at one, one point. I don't know your position now, but it's, it's uncomfortable for a lot of us who grew up in this religious tradition to suddenly be religiously homeless. So Jordan Peterson came along and started explaining why that wisdom was still necessary without all the magic, without all the the um, 
without all the supernatural stuff, which I thought was very useful. I know that I would argue with a lot of people online about Jordan Peterson because a lot of people are into the supernatural stuff and they would see Jordan Peterson talks, you know, with the supernatural stuff included. There are obviously some clips where he's very clear that he's not making a, a supernatural argument which I, I find very interesting. And, and like Sitch was saying, you know, he, he had this very nuanced take on religion and politics and not, you know, even, even not really politics, more about, more about religion and, and you, you uh, developing yourself personally. But since he's turned politically and obviously turned in a direction that I don't necessarily agree with, I'm, I'm super uncomfortable uh, endorsing him now. I mean, I, a lot of our audiences is upset with that because there has been this kind of battle for Jordan Peterson, like the right wants to claim he's one of them. And, you know, everything he's been saying has had a religious context all along and, you know, we just don't see it. I think that claim is easier to make now, which is, is difficult for us, but I mean, I know we're not married to the guy, so I mean, yeah. I'm sure we'll I mean, get over it. I will say I, I I was actually surprised by, you know, when I asked him that question about would you ban uh, transition surgeries for adults? Yeah, I was very surprised. I was at his surprised. I was expect yeah. I was expecting him to be like, no, of course I wouldn't ban it uh, or something to that effect. But no, he he was very clearly unsure. And I don't know if I would say is like, is that a belief he had all along? Or is that something that he's more come to recently? I don't know the answer to that question. That, yeah. That's the question though. That's like the million dollar question. It really mm -hmm. is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there, there are people on, this is the problem with the internet too, because people are in a position now who, who were saying that Jordan Peterson was this extremist who were creating these hit pieces are now able to say, we told you so we knew it all along, yes. right? Yes. Everything that you said about how he was nuanced was incorrect. You were wrong. And, uh, and people will believe that because of the environment now. Um, well, go, go ahead, Sitch. I would assume, I don't know if he's ever, uh, whether, he, I don't know if he's ever been asked directly the question about adults transitioning before, before you asked that question and before he talked about it in the Alan Page video. I don't um, think he had. I, I know he said, even though he would, he was kind of always hit with the bill six, the C 16 thing. What I guess a lot of people didn't know is that he was, he's been asked multiple times in the past. If, you know, would he call someone, uh, he or she, if they were transitioning and he's always, at least in the past said that he would, as long as he felt that they were actually transitioning and that it was real. His main contention was always with the non-binary pronouns and the, you know, the third gender Zer pronouns. So I would assume based on that, that he was at least back then fine with, you know, people who had gender dysphoria diagnosis transitioning, especially since he is a psychologist. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I, it, it annoys, I think the thing that really annoys me is what Adam said is that there's all these people who have been basically, I would say lying about Jordan Peterson or completely misunderstanding him because they're so wrapped up in their own biases. And now they're 
basically, you know, high-fiving each other and give, doing victory laps because they're like, see, we told you, you stupid centrist. We told you Jordan Peterson was really an evil right-wing fascist authoritarian, you know, crazy Christian guy. And we've finally been proven right. And I mean, these people don't know what they're talking about. Well, so they don't. And Jordan Peterson is totally playing into that aesthetic optically. I mean, that's right. <laughs> Twitter right. ban video. Oh, God. So there's right now there's kind of like a war on his Reddit of like the old school Jordan Peterson fans who kind of fall more in the camp <laughs> oh, that you no. guys fall into. And like, right. you know, the new school, more almost like Ben Shapiro type uh, Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. fans. And so there's a little bit of a split now. But ultimately, look. I'm so, I'm kind of optimistic about it because my takeaway from it is fundamentally, I think most people are going to land in this place where they personally feel like, look, I'll when he, I agree with him and when I think he has insights, great, I'll listen to it or I'll read whatever and I'll enjoy it. And if I disagree with him, that's fine. I disagree with him. I actually think it's healthy <laughs> this kind of move away from a lot of people almost looking at him as like, uh -huh. like almost like a demigod and like their intellectual right. father. I think that's a good thing. It's like people are sort of you know, growing up in a sense, I don't want to sound pedantic and, and like I'm looking down at people because I'm not, but I think it's actually a good thing in the long run because it, every, I think everybody's we, had... We need to grow up? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. Because I've had intellectual <laughs> heroes also. Like Noam Chomsky was an intellectual hero of mine, but then when you hit a certain age and you oh, start no. thinking... When you start thinking, you go, you know, I don't quite agree with them on that thing. And then next thing you know, you're going issue for issue on everything, which fundamentally lands right where you guys are politically, where you say, I know, well, yes. just evaluate issue right. for issue and make your mind up that way. Well, yeah, I mean, part of the, you know, becoming an adult process is realizing that you're, you're never going to find someone that you agree with on everything. There's always going to be someone that you like a bunch of stuff, and then they're going to give you some terrible take. And you're going to go, yeah. oh, my God. And you can't let that, like, shatter your worldview or shatter your faith in that person because that's – if everyone thought what you thought, you know, the world would be a boring place. But, I mean, first of all, I'm going to say this. I, I love you, Kyle, but I think you're naive. Okay. Think <laughs> Why? The Noam Chomsky stuff? I, well, no, not that. The oh. Um, oh, well. You said you thought people will, well, I'm not a Noam Chomsky fan, but you thought people will, you know, just grow up and realize to look at Jordan Peterson on issue by issue. I, I don't think that's going to happen at all. I think I think if Jordan Peterson continues sort of in the direction he's, he's going, it's just going to splinter off into just tribalism. You know, right tribalism people will, will love Jordan Peterson or continue to love him. And, you know, more moderate or left tribalism people will just continue to demonize them. I don't think anyone's going to learn anything from this process. Yeah, perhaps. We're going to have to just to like keep our mouth shut basically <laughs> well perhaps I'm, perhaps i'm projecting my own bias onto people that is a fair point sitch i will concede that um, you're, you're projecting your wish it's a, right. it's a, yeah, it's a noble wish um okay. so let's talk a little bit about mmt because you guys again i i talked about how uh you guys oftentimes uh, kind of buck your audience and i find that very interesting but you guys have gone deep on the issue of mmt which for those who don't know and i think a good percentage of my audience knows but it's modern monetary theory it's it's a post-keynesian economic philosophy Talk a little bit about uh, that and explain to everybody. I, would you kind of describe it as, I almost think of it as like uh -huh. the left flank of capitalism. Would you agree with that? And, and go ahead and discuss it a little bit. Adam, start with you. Well, well, that this is one of the reasons why I was interested in MMT because it seems like, and, and I don't like this about the left. It's one of my criticisms of the left, that the left is going full-blown anti-capitalist. <laughs> And I just I didn't grow up with a left wing that was of, you know, basically in bed with communists. So 
I feel like uh, MMT is a pro-capitalist argument that does have a lot of people on the left who are looking at it, entertained by it. I am a little disheartened by the fact that a lot of those people who are looking at it seem to be avowed socialists. And I mean, <laughs> I've been on a quest to find a right wing MMT to bring on our show and actually talk <laughs> to be well, because I just, I, it, MMT is, I mean, it's a fascinating way to look at uh, the economy. I think it is empirically true. I think it is useful and would help a lot of people understand economics a lot better. I think a lot of the confusion in economics, a lot of the partisanship in economics is because people don't have a really good grasp of the the tools that we have at our disposal. And, you know, they're ideologically against the tools. So they're never really going to come to a grasp of what they are. So I, I do think MMT needs to go through a, you know, of a nonpartisan phase. And I'm a little nervous because it seems like, you know, a lot of people are looking at MMT as just like, you know, communist economics or, or you know, far left economics. And nobody is really examining it closely. And I just, I figured, mm -hmm. you know, Sitch and I could be the people to go in there and maybe do that. So, so I, I, I read the book, Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth. And I mean, I was, I was completely fascinated by it, but it is very, very left-wing, very partisan. I don't, you know, I think Stephanie Kelton is a nice person and all that, but I think she's stepping on the moral intuitions of conservatives in a way that if conservatives read that book, they're going to think it's a bunch of garbage. So I, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's good for her. Well, I, this is the thing. Is it, I'll ask you, Kyle, is it good for her, for her message to be partisan, to get it out there, but bad because the right wing is never <laughs> accept her no. message. So, so the answer is no. It's not good. And what you, what anybody should do is try to craft their arguments and their perspective in a way that'll reach the broadest audience. So it satiates the people who kind of already agree with you, but also tries to expand the tent and get people who don't agree with you to agree with you. So, to answer your question, no, that's not good. Yeah. It should be framed in a way where you are tr actively trying to convince people. Because, like you said, I mean. I always thought of MMT as almost like the left flank of capitalism in a sense. It's a post-Keynesian philosophy. And Sitch, talk a little bit about the the like tenets of MMT for people. One of the you, you already touched on <laughs> deficits, Adam. This idea of like, uh, you know, if you have a sovereign currency like we do, and we're the world's sole superpower, it's it's this kind of silly myth. This idea that well, you have to balance your budget like you're a, a household. You know, that, that's actually not true. Mm -hmm. Inflation is something that you need to be concerned about in terms of and how that relates to spending. But as a general rule, there are times where you should run deficits and that's actively a good thing for the economy. Well, like one of the main tenets of MMT is that inflation is the key uh, restrictor for government spending, not the deficit. And that the deficit itself, I mean, I'm... I always, you know, Adam is better at the at the logistics of this, but the deficit itself is not is either not that big of a deal or not really a deal at all. It's really just inflation that's the big deal. And the the interesting thing is, like you're describing MMT as the left flank of capitalism, and it's it's interesting because, like from a descriptive level, 
MMT shouldn't be conceptualized as either left or right wing. Like the prescriptions it gives could be considered political, but just the descriptions of of how they're saying the economy works and how our financial systems work should be completely devoid of politics altogether. And I wouldn't really conceptualize it as left or at all. I guess the the problem is that, and the reason is conceptualized as left, is because for so long in our country, the Republicans have been using the deficit and the ideas of the growing deficit and growing debt as like this cudgel to attack the left. But they're like using it cynically. There's not like there's there's no inherent idea about deficits, you know, within the Republican Party or right wing ideology. It's just that they're trying to tamp down on federal government spending specifically. And so they've sort of used this idea of the deficit to kind of suit their purposes. And because of that, you know, I guess just coincidence of of fate that, you know, the right is anti-federal government for historical reasons that are probably too long to get into on the show, and they're going on and on about the deficit, then MMT becomes a natural enemy of, you know, right-wing politics currently in this moment. Yeah, I feel yeah, like... I don't... The, Go ahead, Adam. The, 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 the technical aspects of it are, are difficult to explain. Obviously, you know, I'm building a model of the economy in my mind and I'm, I'm trying, I want to simplify it. I don't, I don't have it for us today, but it would be nice to simplify it down to like the three rules of MMT. But one of the, one of the revelations of MMT that a lot of people don't get in particular about the deficit, which Sitch is talking about is the, is that spending deficits are private sector savings. Surpluses. And a lot of people Yes. Yes. So the, this completely destroys the Republican argument that the deficit is a big deal because, you know, we want to save money like the Republicans are the ones that are encouraging saving money. So if people save money, the deficit is going to naturally grow to accommodate their desire to save. So shrinking the deficit is actually taking away from private sector savings. So when you think about it like that, you start wondering, well, why are we taking away from people's private sector savings? Doesn't it make them feel better? Don't they sleep better at night knowing that they have money in the bank? I I I feel like they do. I think in Stephanie Kelton's book, she gives a a visual metaphor for to understand this, which I didn't really understand until I read the book. And I don't think most people do either, as it's like, you know, people think that when and this is kind of the way it's been talked about politically, is that when the government is in debt, the federal government's in debt. That it's like we're losing, like you as a private citizen are losing money from this. And in reality, what's going on is it's it's more like if the private citizens of the country are sitting in a, a bathtub and the federal government's sitting in a bathtub, the water is the amount of money that exists. And the debt is basically the federal government taking the water out of their tub and they're putting it in the private citizen's tub. So the debt is the money supply. So if there's no debt, there's no, there's no money. And that's yeah. kind of like, that's like, that's not what people are not understanding about, you know, the way our, our economic situation is set up right now. I, I we, think we, I had a, oh, go ahead. Uh, it's all right. Go, go ahead. ahead. I, well, I lost my thought. Go ahead. Well, no. <laughs> so I was arguing with someone on Twitter as people tend to do. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I said that the, the deficit is the money supply. And this really gets people riled up. Yes. <laughs> and and a an Austrian economist chimed oh in and said, 
Yeah. I said, listen, if the, if the debt is the money supply, then what happened in, I don't know, it's like 1850 or something when Andrew Jackson paid off the debt. Ha ha. I got you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this guy's a, a, a economist, like a professor. There's videos of him giving lectures on YouTube and stuff like this. But this is an interesting dilemma, right? So I went back and I read a book, uh, The Bank War, about the entire situation. And yes, Andrew Jackson did zero out the debt. And the state started printing their own money and blew up the economy. It, it, it caused the greatest recession in America or the greatest depression in American history. It was a gigantic mistake. So why me, just some you know nerd on the internet, why do I have to go searching for this information when some Austrian economist, like this is his big gotcha on Twitter, but he, how come he doesn't know this? You know, I think a lot of it goes back to the fact that people have the root of the problem is that I think a lot of people feel and I would probably put myself in this camp, too, in terms of like what my gut instinct is. I feel like, oh, debt. I don't want to be in debt. That's bad. So they have a hard time conceptualizing that, like, you know, federal government debt is not analogous to personal debt. And when you said shrinking the deficit takes away from savings, that's absolutely true. And the best point to illustrate this is that. There have been times in American history where we've had economic downturns, whether it be a recession or like the Great Depression, where initially the federal government did austerity thinking, hey, this will get us out of the hole that we're in. But every time it exacerbated it and made it worse. So, yeah, austerity is the worst. You have to think of the debt at a moment like that as as like the lifeline of economic growth continuing. And I I think most. Even Keynesians understand this, and Keynesianism is like pre-MMT, so you know at least that's the dominant philosophy currently among most economists. Mm-hmm. There is a good argument against austerity that I think does work with reasonable people, and does play into you know some of the right-leaning moral intuitions. It. It, if the government is not in danger of going bankrupt because they run the printing press, they can print as many dollars as they need to, and there's a downturn, the the, the time to build roads and bridges is during that downturn yes. because you can get labor at a discount. Now, why would you not want to stock up if you are you know, flush with cash? An intelligent human being would stock up when things were half price, would they not? Yes, that's exactly that's, right. So the time to the time to pull back is not during these uh, during these downturns. That's the time to up government spending. And the same thing is true that the the left gets it wrong here too, and the right uh, somewhat. Like when tax receipts are high, they think, "Oh, we're going to build roads and bridges. This is the time, right?" No, that's not the time. That's the time to step back because. The private sector is efficiently using the labor out there. And if we decide to build roads and bridges, we're going to com- be competing with the, the private sector for labor. And that's going to do what? It's going to drive the cost of labor up. And that's not going to be good for anyone. That is going to be inflationary. So it's really counterintuitive and actually backwards from the real situation. And I would actually say tax cuts, too, work in a similar way where all these times where we have a colossal booming economy – and then whether it be George W. Bush or most recently in 2017, Donald Trump went in there and did this massive tax cut. That's not the time to do the tax cut. 
You know what I mean? When you cut taxes, when yeah. the economy's usually you should increase it, at least the marginal rates on the wealthy. So at you know a time like that, when you have a downturn, then you know the government is more flush with cash and can do more. But like we already established, you don't necessarily need the government to be flush with cash in those moments because deficit spending in those instances is probably mm-hmm. uh, a good thing to do. Um, so let's finish up with this, guys. Let's talk I don't. About- I don't necessarily. I don't necessarily know about the tax cut situation. I haven't really thought about it. One of the principles of M and T is that, you know, you have to think specifically about what is going on. You have to look in more detail. And a lot of the policy debates that we have about this stuff is really too general. You know, it's kind of like the sledgehammer versus the surgeon scalpel. And just we need to be better about using the surgeon's scalpel. And I don't necessarily think it that we can't be, but we have to focus on that as a as a nation in order to do it. Like we have to at least draw our attention to it. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I would say there's a principled position on the right in favor of tax cuts, definitely for the wealthy, but you could argue with some of them, even tax cuts for working class people uh, and deregulation. I think they believe those as a matter of principle. That like no matter what, mm-hmm. fewer regulations is better and no matter what, lower taxes is better because some of them believe in the non-aggression principle in the sense that they don't even support a social contract. They think that any taxes amounts to stealing. Right. right. Well, the, the this is tough and this is kind of a little bit of a black pill here. So get ready. Trigger <laughs> warning. <laughs> so the tax cuts for the wealthy, if you think about about how inflation works. Inflation works because people are competing for limited goods and resources, right? So if you, uh, and this might be why we're having inflation now, because we gave, you know, stimulus checks to everybody. So you're going to get a lot of people competing for scarce resources, and that is going to cause inflation. When you dump a bunch of money into one person's bank account who's wealthy, obviously the problem is, and we People on the left say this all the time, right? They can never spend all that money in their entire lifetime. Well, the upside of that is they're not going to be causing inflation with that money, right? They're going to be causing inflation in stocks and bonds and other assets that they're going to buy with that money, but they're not going to be causing the price of gas to go up, right? Yeah. No, that makes sense. I follow that. Yeah. Um, so I will say, though, this is an aside. We don't need to focus too much on this, but uh, my feelings on inflation initially were, I think, the exact same as yours, which is that, well, this obviously has to do with the stimulus checks that were given out and the big spending that we did in the wake of COVID. And then when I spoke to Jeff Stein, who's the economic reporter of the Washington Post, and there were a few others I spoke to as well, they sort of impressed upon me that that may have played some role in it, but actually a very big portion of it is also the fact that our supply chain is so fucked up because of COVID. Yes. Yeah. So that, you know, that's that's most of it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm happy like they just uh, they just passed the CHIPS Act in Congress. And I was happy about that because it's supposed to be to, like, bring back microchip manufacturing here to the U.S. Now, the details of that bill are something that are more debatable and perhaps there are some negative details in there. But the overall idea of, like, let's have microchip manufacturing here. We used to have a lot of it. Then they outsourced it. Now, some of it is being brought back. And one of the main reasons is, you know, where we do the most microchip manufacturing right now. Taiwan. <laughs> and that's like, oh, you know, oh yeah, not yeah. so safe at the moment. Right. So, you know, um, all right, I'm definitely I'm definitely in favor of bringing back any sort of manufacturing whatsoever. So um, so let, let's finish on January 6th. I want to give you guys my like general take on it and then have you react to it. So um, initially, my thoughts on the whole January 6th committee were 
look, this is kind of silly. We know who did what because it's on tape. So, like, arrest the people who committed crimes and let's sort of, you know, be done with this and move on. But I also did say in the wake of that, I would have understood there's some provision in the Constitution, which I talked a lot about at the time, about how um, Congress could have passed basically a law, I think it was, that says Trump can't run for office again because of what happened here on January 6th and how we like sort of egg people on. I didn't want to do impeachment because it seems goofy because he's going to be out of office anyway in like seven and a half minutes. So why would you impeach? It just seems like the weird way to do it. I didn't think it, the bar was high enough to actually have criminal liability. So that's why I thought, hey, this constitutional avenue makes perfect sense where you just say, hey, you can't run again. But I was against the investigation the, because we already have it on video just arrest the people who committed crimes and let's just move on from this and focus on what we should be focusing on, which is, you know, wages, whatever, fill in the blank with standard political stuff that people should care about. Um, but then now as time has gone by and I'm watching it unfold, I, I've come to a, a little bit of a different conclusion, which is, although I still don't know if there's going to be criminal liability, uh, from a political perspective, I understand why the Democrats did it, because I think it's working. I think it's political theater, but I think it's working in terms of the desired goal, which is like, let's make this guy appear accurately so unhinged and so insane and throw so much mud against the wall that some of it is going to stick for Trump to run again in 2024. He might not even win because they've even, I think, effectively made it so the Republican establishment has abandoned Trump. McConnell doesn't like him. All the big uh, players don't like him. The, some of the donors are fleeing him. I covered a story on that the other day. DeSantis is the one who's next in line, who's sort of, you know, they're pushing him to the forefront. So what do you think of my analysis there? Were you guys in favor of it from the beginning? And what do you think about the implications of what happened? Well, I think I had similar thoughts off on the onset of it as you did. I thought, well, we're not going to learn anything useful. Uh, this isn't. This is just going to be a you know political theater show. It's going to be pointless. You know, blah 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 blah. That's kind of how I felt about it. I didn't really have any high hopes for it going into it. Um, and my position about well, let me back up for a second. So anyway, so then we started watching the. Then it actually happened, and I started watching all these hearings, and it completely changed my view on it entirely. I'm actually really happy that they that they have it because. Yes, it is obviously incredibly one-sided, um, and I would, I would like to hear the other side, and I would like, and I, they're probably not going to. I would like for them to release the full depositions to everyone that they had testified, so that you could kind of parse through them to see exactly what you know, make sure everything's in the correct context. But what I, what I like about the hearing, what I think is important, is that when the last election was occurring and Donald Trump was claiming that there was all this election fraud, you know. I think a lot of people who were on the right or even people that were on the right that were kind of just somewhere in the middle, they assumed that when Donald Trump was claiming all these, you know, that there's all this election fraud across the country, that he being the president of the United States of America had access to some kind of information that the public wasn't, didn't have access to, that he was drawing these claims from, you know, somewhere. He wasn't just that Donald Trump wasn't just reading Twitter and Facebook post and drawing claims about you know election fraud and the thing that's useful about the january 6th hearing is that we find out that's not the case he literally was just drawing you know election fraud claims from twitter and facebook and that you know bill barr and who he put in the office as the you know the attorney general and all his lawyers and all the people that he had basically investigating election fraud cases who are all pro-trump people who would all be in their best interest for there to be election fraud all these people that surrounded him were saying, 
we can't find any election fraud, Mr. President. You know, your claims you're making just are not true. They're just completely not true. And the only people that were supporting Trump's claims about election fraud were, you know, the crazy people like Giuliani and Powell and uh, Flynn. And they were going, you know, and these were the people that believed that satellites were changing votes and all the Dominion stuff. And now they're getting disbarred for or sued for and all that stuff. And like you even had in, in one of the January 6th hearings, you know, the, it's like the head representative, Republican representative in Arizona is asking Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani goes to him and he's like, hey, you should call in, you know, the House back in the session so that you could throw out all the votes in Arizona and just declare Donald Trump won the state of Arizona. And he's like, listen, Rudy, I voted for Donald Trump. That'd be great. But uh, you need to give me evidence of election fraud before I do that. And he never does. And they could never provide any evidence for anything. By the way, that and guy so lost his that, race, Hitch. That guy's name is Rusty Bowers, the guy you just described, the Arizona. Yeah. And he just lost his oh, race lo- because of that. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Right. But see, that's what's it's so unfortunate. Everything's so tribal now that doesn't matter. You know, as long as you just if you don't toe the line that the election was stolen, I guess it's going to hurt you. And that's what so many Republicans wow. are basically, you know, being uh, afraid of and being cowarded by. But the when it comes to the January 6th, and I, th- I think the Democrats, however, have kind of made a mistake with January 6th stuff, which is that the actual, I understand like psychologically, the visuals of having all of these people rush, you know, the Capitol and break in and all that stuff. Like that's all very visually, psychologically exciting. That's really the least important aspect of everything that happened in that time period, because there was really no realistic chance that those people going into the Capitol would have actually caused, you know, the vote to change or anything like, like nothing they were doing would have actually had any impact on the country. It was just kind of embarrassing and, you know, uh, crazy, but it wouldn't have actually done anything. But Trump trying to get Pence to throw out the votes, Trump trying to get the state uh, uh, set or state houses to throw out the votes and basically just vote him president and the scheme he concocted with Clark to try to, to, to basically lie and say that the, the Department of Justice had found evidence of fraud when they hadn't. To me, all these things behind the scenes, which are all just these non-sexy stories of people sitting around in rooms talking, that's like the real crime that happened with the election fraud stuff and the real crime that January 6th hearings have sort of brought to the forefront. And that should be the focus. And unfortunately, that's not the focus. Unfortunately, the focus is you know, Donald Trump attacked someone maybe in a limo or Donald Trump threw a plate of, you know, a sandwich at a wall and it left ketchup. Like people in the news, just they just focus on these visually salacious details that really aren't that important to the whole story. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And I think and all those people who did actually break laws on January 6th at the Capitol, they've been, you know, tried and found guilty, a lot of them. So it's like, Okay, yeah. we can put that part aside. Now let's talk about the stuff that actually matters, which is the genuine attempt to like nullify an election and overthrow it. Adam, what sh- what are your thoughts on that? Well, we on the show we cover we have a few lenses of the world that we kind of use. Like we've talked about the MMT lens. Uh, we use another lens that we haven't really talked about: moral foundations theory, which comes from Jonathan Haidt. That's a really interesting way to an- analyze things on the personal level. Uh, selectorate theory we use a lot in situations like this where we're evaluating power structures. And this was really the reason why I wanted to cover the January 6th stuff, because it's it's straight selectorate theory. Like um, 
in order for Trump to stay in power, he has to build a power base and all of the stuff of him replacing the head of the DOJ with like some environmentalist attorney or whatever, just so he can send the letter out that that says the the election was a fraud is straight like uh, straight dictator authoritarian uh, move. So that's that that's unfortunately the thing that is most interesting to us and is least interesting to everybody else, because like Sitch said, they just want to focus on the salacious stuff. So as soon as we started covering this, we did, we did note that, you know, there's some substantive stuff here. The, the normal response to January 6th is, you know, it's just a show trial. There's nothing to see here. And they want to, to point obviously to the weakest claims being made, and I, I mean, I get it. It's a partisan situation. I honestly wish we didn't live in a world where they were making these weak claims, but you know, that's the world we live in. But there are plenty of strong claims with lots of evidence being made. And that's really what we're focused on. So a lot of people have turned have not liked us covering January 6th and uh, basically accused us of focusing on claims that we're not really even interested in. But like that's the internet, right? That's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I give you guys a lot of credit for being able to, even with getting like sustained criticism, kind of still read it and move forward and stay the course. Because, you know, my reaction, once, once you hit a certain point, it, it's like too much to take in. So, I, you know, I've come to the point, and we were talking about this before the show, where I'm like, I just don't really read it. And then it's a lot easier to stay the course. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas you guys have to still <laughs> right. absorb the negative stuff and then still stay the course, which is almost like a level above that. I it's it's hard because there is a lot of really intelligent people in our audience that give us a lot of really insightful stuff like a lot of a lot they're always offering book recommendations and stuff like that and so I mean I guess you got to take the good with the bad there is a level of of viciousness though that you kind of have to to get through but I guess I'm just thick skinned in that it department I'm glad you used the term intelligence, Adam, because I, I wanted to ask you, Kyle, I, I think that me and Adam have a very different worldview than you do. And I, I think most people, when it comes to these political disagreements, they think, oh, you know, a person has looked at facts, you know, and they've kind of drawn a conclusion about the world. Either, you know, they're being honest and they, they're giving their honest, uh, political opinion or they're looking at facts and they're being dishonest. And I don't know, maybe they're getting paid off by someone to to vote a specific way or to kind of give political punditry in a specific way. And I just I don't think me and Adam don't think that's the way the world works at all. You know, we kind of subscribe to, as he said, you know, Heights Moral Foundations Theory and, you know, books like Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, where it's just that, you know, people either are born with or maybe have pressed upon them certain moral foundations, certain intuitions about, uh, you know, moral questions and political questions. And that they have, like, whenever someone's posed essentially like, oh, what should we do in the situation? That really what happens is that they don't think about it, you know, consciously. They just have an emotional reaction based on this moral foundation. They say, oh, you know, I don't like the government, you know, putting their hand in my pocket. Or I'm care more about the poor, you know, and helping the poor and needy people. They just have these like sort of intuitive emotional responses to every issue. And then the conscious brain comes in and sort of creates the rational framework 
after they've already made the decision about what they want to do to kind of justify it after the fact. And to me, that's really what's motivating, you know, 99% of human behavior, especially in this political realm. And I think when you understand that, I don't know, to me, when you understand that, you start to see the way people are acting far more clearly. Yeah. And you're able to also have conversations because you don't have sort of a caricatured view of whoever you're talking to if they disagree with you. And, you know, to your point, you don't think like, oh, this person is just evil or stupid because Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of the problem is everyone says everyone assumes everyone thinks the way they do and sees the world the way they do. And then so if you disagree with someone, you're like, wow, you must be stupid because how do you not see the facts the way that I see them? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think all that's totally true. Um, And just expand on that point a little bit. Like, I think the people who fall into that trap that you're describing, I can name two off the top of my head. I could probably go on and on. But like. (laughs) <laughs> Rachel Maddow is somebody on MSNBC who I think falls into that. It has like a yes. super caricatured view of the right and, you know, rah-rah Democratic Party all day long. And then on the flip side, you could say like Rush Limbaugh, who's now passed away. A better example might be mm-hmm. Hannity today, who's the, like the exact same. Everything's black and white. They, you know, my opponents are all caricatures and we're, you know, the virtuous good ones who are crusading for all that is just. Um, the way I like to approach these things is that I always assume you know, good intent and that people mean what they say. And until there's overwhelming evidence of the opposite, that somebody's a bad actor, it's very rare that I, you know, oh, this person's a bad actor. No, there needs to be a lot there for me to say that. So you take somebody at their word and then you can explore the disagreements. And I think you're hundred percent right when you say, yeah, everybody sort of has whatever their moral intuitions are. And then they can, you know, build off that accordingly. And I'm much more interested in understanding where somebody is coming from and exploring it and potentially disagreeing than I am at chastising. And look, that's why I mm-hmm. think this co- this type of a conversation is great. Because like you said, you know, we don't agree on, on a lot of stuff. We, you know, maybe we have 50%, 60% agreement, something like that. That's a lot of area of disagreement, but we're able to have a productive, nuanced conversation. And look, I think that's way more interesting than walking through life with the blinders on and treating everybody you disagree with like a caricature. Right. Yeah, I I totally agree. I'm I'm glad you've like reached out and started talking to us because I mean we do like going into a lot of the like nerdy policy <laughs> debates and stuff like that, and it's rare to find you know other creators that really like diving into the details like that. So it's, yeah, well, th- thank you so much for like including us in the conversation. I just I want to make one point about like the moral the moral intuitions thing. I think like the the place where it is super helpful is you you gain a certain humility about your ability to change people's minds. Like I don't go into these conversations thinking I'm going to be able to change people on the right or people on the left's minds. But I can be conscious of the things that I say that will will provoke their moral intuitions, <laughs> that will step on their moral intuitions in uncomfortable ways. I brought this up with the with the Stephanie Kelton book. And you know, if I as my vision for society, maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the road, is like Stephanie Kelton would realize that she has blind spots and would hire, you know, not a partisan editor, but some editor that understood certain ways you say things are going to rub people the wrong way and you're going to lose, you're, you're going to lose those people, not because they're not a fan of your argument or they think your argument is illogical, but because, you know, 
this this unconscious process that goes on in people has a lot more sway than the the rational processes that we all like to believe are running the sh- the show. So I think um, I think in particular, and this is you know definitely aimed at your audience, Kyle. And I know a lot of people want to be activists, and they want to change the world in positive ways. I very much uh, would like to change the world in positive ways. I I don't. I don't know how much of it is you can do that, but learning like reading height, uh, the books, the righteous mind, learning about moral foundations theory, I think can make people tangibly better activists because they do get some sort of understanding for the other side that they might not necessarily get just in standard political debate. And they will also be able to avoid, you know, stepping on those people's, feelings. Now, if the point is to step on their feelings, which is a lot, I mean, that is a lot of internet debate. It's not going to be helpful, but I like to think there are more people who are interested in having interesting conversations than just attacking people. So, yeah, I mean, I like to think there's probably a decent number in my audience that's kind of solid on that front, because I always talk about how like my proudest moments are when I'm at some convention thing, like when I used to do Politicon all the time, and then somebody will come up to me and be like, you know, hey, I was going down kind of a bad path and they were ending up in like weird white nationalisty Richard Spencer type circles. And then I watched your stuff and you sort of got, you know, started the process to kind of get me out of that. Those are my proudest moments. And I feel like, um, you know, stuff like this helps in, in, in that respect, because as long as you're having open and honest conversation and you're not straw manning the other ones, then, you know, even if you can, even if you agree to disagree at the end, at least you understand each other better and only good things come from that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're we're definitely fighting for that persuadable slice of the electorate. I think there's, I think there is, you know, thirty percent that's going to vote Democrat no matter what. There's thirty percent that's going to vote Republican no matter what. But there is, I mean, there's a a slice in there that is, I mean, they're basically the kingmakers in every election that we have, especially when there are these narrow, narrow elections. We obviously have to fight gerrymandering because that's a, a giant problem that we have in America. But yeah, speaking to that that middle portion is that's that's the sweet spot. That's what we all have to learn to do. Uh, so guys, tell uh, the audience where they can follow you on Twitter and where they can see your show and everything. I'm I'm Adam Friendy. You can look me up on on Twitter. Our show channel is the Sitch and Adam Show. So you can look us up on on YouTube. On the YouTube's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we do. We stream twice a week. We stream on Sundays and Tuesdays, and we do long streams. Uh, we leave our Sunday streams up. That's our Sunday show is kind of the thing that's got us going. Now we do a Tuesday stream where we cover uh, stories or interviews and we clip them out and post them as standalone videos on the channel. But I'm, sub- I think our live streams actually get like more views than our standalone videos. Yeah. So yeah. I don't that's know impressive. how that's impressive. Well, we have an, we will do a 12 hour live stream and it'll get like 50,000 views. And I'm, I'm just like, who watches a 12 hour live stream? I love that. I think that's awesome to, <laughs> yeah. that people want to engage more with the long form stuff, you know? Yeah. 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 And we, we stream from uh, four to sometimes four in the morning, 4 p.m. to sometimes 4 a.m. Uh, Jeez, man. Eastern time. Wow. So. And Sitch, uh, you're PSA Sitch, right? PSA Sitch on Twitter PSA for everybody? PSA Sitch on Twitter, yes. All right, awesome. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining me. I had a really great time. Um, 
I enjoy watching your stuff, particularly the really, you know, the long form discussions and debates. I think they're really interesting. So thanks for so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is great. All right, everybody. So that was Sitch and Adam of the Sitch and Adam show. Um, they're an interesting bunch. They're an interesting bunch. I sh- probably should have gotten more into um, what led them to streaming and doing a show in the first place and who sort of anchored them ideologically, um, you know, like what uh, thinkers or potential creators um, sort of set them on a certain ideological path. I probably should have gotten into that, didn't really get into that, but I think it was a very substantive conversation nonetheless. Um, you guys know me, man. I enjoy having conversations with people where we don't really see eye to eye, but there's enough in common where you can keep moving the conversation forward. I think it's hard to, if you talk to somebody who you, you know, disagree with on literally everything, I think that's <laughs> almost impossible to make work because there's just no shared reality. Um, this is a situation where, you know, they might agree with me and I might agree with them 50 or 60% of the time, but nonetheless, um, they're very easy to talk to interesting characters. So everybody, uh, go ahead and check out their show, the Sitch and Adam show on YouTube. I've seen them. Uh, I like particularly their conversations and their discussions, um, with other creators. I think they do a decent job compared to a lot of other people of kind of focusing most on the issues. Like they did, um, it was like an 11 hour stream or something for their 200th show the other week. And there was uh, a lot of interesting debates that happened at the time. So anyway, um, for everybody who is not a member on our Substack, what are you doing? $5 a month. Um, that'll get you a video of every Crystal Kyle and friends and it gets it to you a day early. Uh, and we don't take any ad money, any ad money at all for this show. So we're only funded through your guys' $5 a month donations. So thank you to everybody who already is a Substack member and for everybody else, please consider helping out. It would mean the world to us. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Everybody else can listen to the uh, audio podcast for free um, a day after the video version drops. So enjoy. Love you guys. I'll talk to you next week.